uh, let's see. So I know Chris ran an appendicitis study a couple years back, but I'm guessing all those residents must have graduated. Yes. Um, and so like, I don't know how much you guys are doing here, but the pro there's like several things that I see on the horizon. One is um, this whole CAT scan and radiation uh, issue uh, is like getting more and more traction. And so I'm finding more and more parents are actually asking about the radiation risk. And we know that uh, like the relationship of radiation and cancer, it, it's a linear relationship. Basically, the more radiation you get exposed to, the higher risk for cancer. So, um, um, so I think, and I think radio pediatric radiology is, they're, they're not going to be able to help you, um, even if you're in a academic medical center. If you go community, you're going to be on your own. And if you learn how to do this, uh, you'll be helping out the children, you know, helping out the kids that present to your ED. Now, you need to remember that 90% of uh, kids in the United States present to a general emergency department, well, th they're going to be seen by a general emergency physician um, statistically. And then only 10% of children are actually seen in a specialized children's hospital where they may or may not have ultrasound 24-hour coverage and pediatric radiologists to, uh, to help make the diagnosis. And so even where I am at Mount Sinai, our pediatric radiologists are so busy with the specialized transplant kids, they, they've got their hands full. And so I don't know, what our protocol is basically ultrasound first by the radiologist, and if they can't get the answer, then they go to CT. Now it's kind of, since I've started, because it's usually anywhere from a three to six hour wait, if it's like overnight or on the weekends, just for the radiolo radiology resident usually, to get to do the ultrasound, the kid just like sitting there for like a couple of hours. And so what I'm finding very useful, and uh, it's all about relationships sometimes. So um, our pediatric surgeons are starting to trust our ultrasounds. And so basically, wherever you go, what you do is you get to sit down, know who your surgeons or pediatric surgeons are, and uh, show them what, ultras what appendicitis looks like on ultrasound. And if they get comfortable with a good story, so usually the story has to be pretty good. They've got, they're vomiting, they point right in McBurney's, the white count's high, and then it's almost like the pistolar resistance is you show them uh, your ultrasound image, and, you, and sometimes I'll just like take them to the bedside, it's like, look, and I'm pressing on the appendicitis right there, and then they're like, the story's good, the white count high, okay, book the OR, and we've actually gotten kids, like, like the, their length of stay is like 30 minutes, and they're like up in the OR getting, and that's happening probably like once a, once a month at least, and so I'm teaching some of the other, and it's kind of a neat thing, so it's for those high pretest prob where the story is already good, it's like, forget the three hour wait for radiology ultrasound, definitely you've done them a favor by avoiding the CAT scan. So, um, in terms of the probes, I like to use, well actually, the linear's okay, but if you've got a um, microconvex, there's some special, but most, if you've got a sonocyte, you're probably going to use a linear array. But they do have dedicated pediatric probes, which are basically the tip of the transvaginal ultrasound. It's about five to eight megahertz. 
And um, this is useful, too. Actually, when I started using ultrasound, I only had two probes. I had a, cur a curved abdominal and a transvaginal. And I actually started doing appendicitis using a transvaginal probe. So, because I didn't have a linear. So, um, all right, so you guys know about orientation. In terms of diagnostic tests, uh, one comment I want to make is, I think it's hard to publish emergency ultrasound papers, and that's because the, the amount of sophistication in terms of like statistics is at such a high bar that I think for us to publish an emergency ultrasound, it's much higher than the radiologists need to publish. And if you look at the radiology literature, it's like their ultrasound literature is actually crap. And it's kind of like we have to jump through so many more hoops um, because we have the scrutiny of the radiologists and, and kind of like some hardcore stats people in our own field. So when we're talking about accuracy, diagnostic accuracy, it's basically sensitivity and specificity. And this you can look up in the textbook. Um, and in terms of the physical exam, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I've been out for 10 years now, and I can't believe it's been that long. But my physical exam skills are not getting any better as time goes by. But uh, I'm definitely getting much, much better at ultrasound. And it's just kind of like um, I'm always learning something new every shift. And um, the, the more experience you get under the belt, the better you get at it. So it's like if you're still in residency, you guys are working lots of shifts. Um, you know, I would, it's, if you have a kid coming in with right lower quadrant pain and they can point where it is, I think that's like the best chance for you to find appendicitis. So if you look at physical exam findings, you'll notice nothing's like above 80%, right? It's not, it's, I don't, uh, I don't blame the pediatric surgeon not taking a kid to the OR just based on my, my history and physical. Oh, I think this kid's got appendicitis on, uh, you know, on my physical exam. And it's like, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, get the CAT scan or get the ultrasound. Um, now, if you look at CAT scan, so the reason why CAT scan is so valuable is that very high sensitivity. And so uh, that's why this has been like the preferred test over ultrasound. Ultrasound does have lower sensitivity. Oh, I, I forgot. Where's my, okay. So there's something a little mnemonic that I like to talk about. It's called spin and snout. You guys have heard of it. So, uh, so specificity helps us rule in disease. So spin is uh, specificity helps us rule in disease when the specificity is high. For sensitivity, so that's snout. So SN is sensitivity, helps us rule out disease when your sensitivity is high. Um, so if you look at all of ultrasound, not just the stuff that I have up here, um, you'll notice that whatever it is, usually the specificity is higher than the sensitivity um, for, for ultrasound, which means that ultrasound, in general, no matter what the pathology is, helps us rule in disease as opposed to rule out disease. So that's why when we want to rule stuff out, we usually need to go to CAT scan. But ultrasound can help us rule in pathology. And so that's how, that's for peds people who are very uncomfortable using ultrasound. I said, well, I'm learning this. How do I stay out of trouble? It's kind of like you only get trouble if you try to rule out disease using 
ultrasound. You need your history, physical, other labs, your whole picture, not just ultrasound. But usually if someone shows me like a big fat appendicitis, it's like I don't, care, I don't really care what the history of your physical is. It's like you've got appendicitis right there. And I'll show you some pictures. Now the, the interesting thing I'd like to comment is this, oops, what did I do? There we go. Okay. So uh, this is Boston Children's, the number one children's hospital on U U.S. News Re World Report. They actually had a 65% sensitivity. And this is Chris uh, from a couple of years ago, 82% with emergency medicine residents. So these are pediatric emergency, and I'm sorry, pediatric radiology fellows and pediatric radiologists at the best children's hospital in the country versus Chris and his emergency med it's like you actually had better uh, better sensitivity than Boston Children's. Once I want to take credit for what you just said, I, I kind of want to just let this go right now. Just go to the next slide, but I think... Wait, I'm I sorry. You had it, I, I have it ro the wrong way. Yeah, um, 44. <laughs> no, 44 and 65. So that, that, that yeah, on the middle study. Right? Oh, this is Jim Holmes's. Yeah. uh fast study, but 44 over that's still better, right? And, and even though the confidence intervals do overlap, you, you did better than Boston Children's. Is that awesome? Okay. So actually, so yeah, so when I meet pediatric radiologists, I like to, it's like, they better watch out. I think we're going to get better than radiologists in this. Um, and so in terms of the FAST exam, it's going to be the same thing. The specificity is higher than the sensitivity. So when we see, usually this is for free fluid. So it, if someone tells me that they're f seeing free fluid, even a medical student, I'm going to believe them. But if the same medical student says, oh, there's no free fluid, um, well, there's a lot of reasons why there might not be free fluid. And actually in New York City, where our transport times are usually short, like about five minutes, often they have not bled enough to have a positive Morrison's. And usually, after we're done with the primary, secondary survey, about 10, 15 minutes later, then the, the fast becomes positive. So it's kind of like, I usually have a little mental clock going on. It's like, after about 15 minutes, it, I'll, I'll tell like one of the residents to do a second fast exam. And I would say probably one out of 20 times, like the fast has become positive. Okay. So yeah, so here's spin and snout. So this helped me understand, helped me in journal club. So if you're in journal club going over a diagnostic test study, it's like, well, is the sensitivity higher or the specificity is higher? And then, then I kind of think in terms of, well, does this help me rule in disease or does it help me rule out disease? All right, so that's the little EBM pearl. All right, so uh, sometimes, I am just in a world of abdominal pain. It's like everybody and their uncle has abdominal pain. It's like I'll have like a dozen kids having belly pain. And it's, uh, and it's like you kind of dread. It's like if half of them need to go to CT, um, they would just be sitting around. And being able to uh, use ultrasound to figure out um, who you can send home, who definitely needs to stay and get worked up, and who you might need to do more work up is very helpful. So be careful of the kid under five years old. So four-year-old boy, um, actually, so this is a case that I had a couple of years ago, um, seen in the ED 48 hours for constipation. So be careful about, you know, oh, this is constipation. 
um, given an enema with resolution of pain, and then comes back 48 hours later with belly pain and fever. He's guarding rebound, lower abdominal tenderness. Um, so this is going to be a clip from, uh, let's see. How do I get the, is it this? No. How do I get the, uh, So this is going to this is gallbladder, and this is the right upper quadrant, and we're just scanning down to the right lower quadrant. So we're just like running this, and you're seeing this. Okay. So there's not much in the literature about uh, looking for perforated appendicitis, but basically when you see perforated appendicitis, it's just one big abscess in the belly, um, and it's usually obvious. Um, and then the other thing to pay attention to is usually the fat gets very bright. So if you get used to looking at normal bowel, you'll notice that um, the bowel or the fat around it looks really bright. And of course, um, usually these kids go to CT because the surgeon wants to see what the extent of the perforation is. And then from a management standpoint, it's either interval appy versus IR drainage. So this is the CT. Um, yeah, so basically this is what we want to avoid. Although if you read the PEDS literature, the problem is it's like they're saying appendicitis is no longer a emergency. Um, there's less and less pediatric surgeons willing to take these kids to the OR in the middle of the night. They'll just say, put them on antibiotics and uh, let them cool off. And I'm not quite, if you look at the literature, I'm not sure they have literature to back that. But you have to remember that for PEDS EM, Perforated appendicitis is the number two reason why we get sued after missed bacterial meningitis. So, um, so you know, when you're in this situation, uh, cover yourself. Make sure you've got PEDS surgery on board. Um, if you are unsure of your ultrasound, and this is what I tell the PEDS-EM folks, it's just like, uh, you know, right now it's kind of like we're not getting consent for CAT scan. It's kind of like you're, if you're not sure, just go right to CAT scan because that's what the surgeon's going to say and certainly uh, that's what pediatric radiology is going to say and you'll just have to bite the bullet and if you do have a very sophisticated parent, you just have to say, well, the pr problem with not getting the CAT scan and missing it is your child's going to end up in the hospital for 10 days getting IV antibiotics and that's really what you want to avoid. Sure. Abdominal, the constipation diagnosis in a kid. I don't have any data to back this up, but I operate under the principle that, it, that constipation does not cause abdominal pain. It's commonly thought throughout your colleagues and the surgeons that constipation causes abdominal pain. What it causes is fullness, you know, bowel movement, distension perhaps. But if it hurts, our approach should be that it's not constipation until we're absolutely sure that, there's, that we've ruled out the serious diagnosis. Sending a kid home after an enema because he had a you know minimal bowel movement and still has abdominal pain as a chief complaint is really risky because they end up with appendicitis. So just don't don't think in terms of constipation causing abdominal. Pain. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that's a great point. If they're still having belly pain, you cannot send the kid home, right? So, but what was actually concerning was this kid seemed to have responded, had a big bowel movement, responded. And then, so the problem was he had 48 hours in between his visit. And so it is possible that 
the constipation from 48 was too, too unrelated, and that he may have developed appendicitis after his visit. So this was, ended up being like a kind of an M&M uh, risk management type case. But, it, but it's like I see people getting burned on this all the time. Appendic so. Appendicitis is a phlegmon adjacent to bowel, which then causes an ileus and can lead to low, low motility and low bowel movement. So yeah, the history may be low bowel movement with abdominal pain, and that doesn't mean that it's just constipation. It might be an adjacent reason that there's low bowel movement. All right, so this is the same clip. I was showing a, you a linear. So, um, so sometimes people will start, this is like a phased array probe. And I just wanted to, you to see what this abscess looks like using a different probe. So actually, I think this was the first scan, and then they went to linear. So basically, it looks just like an abscess. OK. So And then here's the linear. And it just basically gives you definition. And I think uh, you can even see a fecal lift in here. So when you see that fecal lift, that's actually, it's like a little red traffic light. It's like, hello, we've got appendicitis going on. Um, well, we're going very lightly, so I'm not even, I mean, usually they tolerate it fine. Actually, some people say they need to give like a little fentanyl or morphine, and I would only do that, so there's something called sonopalpation, which I will talk a little bit about. Um, but usually, I, when they come in perfed, it's pretty obvious, and it's just kind of like, uh, I usually have the ultrasound machine as I'm doing my initial history and physical, and I'm like, where are you hurting? And then instead of even pressing, I just like go, I've actually incorporated the probe into my exam, and I'm just kind of like, where are you hurting? And I'm looking exactly where they're hurting. That's the point of maximum tenderness is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so for appendicitis, hold on. Now you want to see from tip all the way to cecum. So this is kind of like picture perfect appendicitis. In the short axis, you'll see this kind of like little target sign. And then, so uh, the general principle is about ultrasound is you want to image in perpendicular planes. So just like a chest x-ray, you get a PA and lateral. I usually like the people that I train, I want you to show me in two clips the appendicitis in short axis and long axis. So this is the long axis from tip to cecum. And this way I know we're seeing the whole thing. I mean, this pretty much clinches the diagnosis. And when we show this to the ped surgeon, uh, they're comfortable um, taking them to the OR. And then, of course, it, it needs to be the numbers are greater than six millimeters. But you have to realize the problem with cutoffs is you may have people who have a normal appendix, and their appendix actually measures greater than six millimeters in width. And you might actually have, there will be cases where you'll have people who have just a small appendix, and when they have appendicitis, it'll be like 5.8, 5.9. Um, so still, you need to like use all the information. Um, the other thing is, if you don't get a measurement greater than six millimeters, and you're not visualizing the entire length of the appendix, you could, you could be missing the part of the appendix that actually is inflamed. So uh, we've actually had a couple of cases of tip appendicitis, where we couldn't visualize the whole thing. And then on CAT scan, they saw the tip that was greater than six millimeters. So, uh, so in terms of 
uh, I'm kind of slanted towards ruling in the appendicitis. So I make the criterially uh, strict. So you need to see one part of the appendix greater than six millimeters. You want to try to image from tip to cecum if you can. I know that probably happens about 60% of the time. And then uh, the other thing that I like to talk about, which is not in the literature, is something called sonal palpation. So if you're pressing right over where you're seeing, you think you're seeing the appendicitis, I think that almost clinches the diagnosis. And then what you do is you move the probe off either superior or inferior to where you're seeing it, and then you press again and you just ask the patient, it's like, are you feeling the pain? And then often, because the appendicitis is very focal, they'll say no, it's like it was more painful where you had it before. Then it's like, I, I, I know I've clinched the diagnosis. Yes? Oh, okay, so yeah, so in terms of measuring, usually outer to outer, okay, and here it's about 7.5 millimeters. Um, I think we'll have more. So, I mean, these are the criteria, so greater than six, non-compressible, no peristalsis, and the blind, a blind tip that connects to the cecum. And so, in general, I usually start from, actually, I've reversed it, right lower quadrant to right upper quadrant, because... Um, if we get to our kind of bonus cases, sometimes you're going to pick up some interesting things. Um, we've actually had uh, cases where appendicitis, it sounded like appendicitis and it turned out to be interception. Um, and then we've also had, let's see, stuff that you thought was going to be uh, cholelithiasis that turned out to be appendicitis with the tip of the appendix right by the gallbladder. So, um, so it's, you still kind of need a kind of a, um, a more goal-directed, you want to check all the objects of interest on the right side, so gallbladder, the right kidney, and then just quickly scanning from the right upper quadrant to the cecum. All right, so now the problem with this whole CAT scan radiation thing is we can't use it as a rule-out tool. Now what I found is I usually find appendicitis within the first minute of scanning, and as time goes on, the chance for me to find appendicitis uh, drastically falls. It's like I usually find it within, when the story is good and they're pointing, it's usually, boom, I find it within 10 seconds of scanning. Now, if it's not there, um, you're basically looking for a normal appendix, and now, I actually, when I went to Asia, I was like asking, how do you guys get 99, 95% sensitivity looking for normal appendix? And actually, they don't use as much CAT scan there, so they're stuck with ultrasound. They will scan their patients for at least an hour. And some of them will say, oh, it's like if you can't spend an, a half an hour, 30 minutes, looking for normal appendix, you're wasting your time. So. So we're kind of approaching this at two ends. One end is the high pretest prob where just by the history and physical, you're sure they've got appendicitis. And then you can just use your ultrasound to kind of confirm the diagnosis. Now, if the ED is slow, so it's kind of like in my ED, it's like we know our kind of break even is about we want to uh, kind of churn through three patients per hour. And so for me to spend an hour scanning, looking for normal appendix, that's just not going to be, it's not going to work. Um, but if the ER is slow and it's an overnight and, you know, it's like I can take the time to do it, I will, and you'll have done that patient a favor. Now, um, so this is kind of a, a little schematic of why it's hard to find the normal appendix. So this is the psoas, right? This is all bowel. 
And we need something to help us highlight where the normal appendix is. So that's why finding normal appendix is difficult. But if you have appendicitis, it usually just jumps out at you. Okay? All right. So this is just another clip. And then th this is basically the protocol. So we've actually got, um, I'm usually starting in transverse. And, and if it's focal, this will just jump out. And you're looking for this target sign. And here it's measuring at 9.4 millimeters. And then we should show the long axis. So here I've got the probe going up, up and down. And then here's the long axis. It was measuring at 8.1. OK. All right, so just in terms of how to get started. So I usually say whatever application you're doing, you want to look for something that is constant. It's going to be your friend, your anchor, when you're looking. So everybody's got a psoas muscle. So I use this as my landmark. And I divide the abdomen into lateral and medial. So let's play this. And you just basically want to get comfortable looking at the bowel. So here's bowel. This is the peritoneal line. This is the psoas. Here's your iliacs. Right? And then what I do is I'll actually press down the psoas muscle. So if I can do that, it's kind of like the, the chance that they have appendicitis goes down because I can actually, uh, I can actually squeeze the psoas all the way up to the abdominal wall. And here's the tip of the normal appendix, and here's the cecum. And I'll, I think I'll show you the measurement. Is about 3.6 millimeters. So that's normal appendix. And then this is the long axis. Here's a psoas. There's a cecum. And let's see, where is it? I don't think we, sometimes you can see it in this view. I don't think I'm demonstrating it. OK. All right, so, uh, so I'm talking about using ultrasound to help us rule in appendicitis. Well, someone came up with a clinical decision rule to help us rule out appendicitis. And so um, uh, this is from Boston Children's. They did recursive partitioning on a cohort of 600 patients. And they came up with three variables where they're saying that you can, with a 90% sensitivity, you can probably send these kids home. So an absolute neutrophil count less than 6,750, which actually correlates to a white count about 10,000. So it was just kind of interesting that recursive partitioning um, pick down absolute neutrophil count over white count. The absence of vomiting the, and the absence of maximal tenderness in right low quadrant. Now, if they have any one of these things, that means you need to work up the kid. And the other thing is you have to have enough P-test suspicion that you're actually going to get the white count. Okay? All right. All right, so palpation is a physical exam skill. This is something that the radiologist won't do. Um, so I'm going to talk about sonopalpation. Um, I didn't come up with this. It's like I've been doing this for a while before I even realized that I had been doing this. And so this term was, I've seen it written by an Austrian pediatric radiologist. He was actually a pediatrician first, went into pediatric radiology, and started kind of uh, writing papers where he's actually incorporating the physical exam with ultrasound. And he actually said, yeah, sonopalpation, um, we know it's kind of like the sonographic Murphy's exam is actually an example of sonopalpation. And so basically what that is is using the probe to palpate where the point of maximal tenderness is. 
Hold on. So here I am, I'm actually pressing down, and the patient's saying, yeah, that's exactly where it hurts. And even if I don't see it from tip to cecum, and I'm seeing something that measures greater than six millimeters, it's like I'm going to be pretty sure that this is appendicitis. Here's another example. So sometimes you just cannot image the whole thing from tip to cecum. But if you've got this, and it's measuring greater than six millimeters, and the patient's like, yeah, that's exactly where it's hurting, I think that's very helpful. Um, oh, this was a cool one. This was a 19-year-old girl who was about in her second trimester with right low quantum pain. And she could point exactly where her uh, pain was. And we just put the probe right down. And immediately we see this. But when we run the clip, you'll see how close it was to her uterus. Hold on. So this is the appendicitis. It's like about to perf. This is the uterus. And here's her baby's head. So I thought that's crazy. This is like a grenade that's just about to go off right next to the baby's head. <laughs> right? And then I, I think we switched over to the abdominal just to make sure the, the fetus was OK. Right? It's kind of in the second trimester. And then here's the appendicitis. So not the best resolution with a phased array probe, but that was kind of neat. OK, and then measuring about 6.1. It would have been much greater if you measured um, from end to end. All right, so. I can see what people are thinking sometimes that I do the same thing in my life where I throw up an ultrasound, and I know exactly what I'm looking at. And then I start to think about it from other people's perspective. That they see like an abnormal hypopoke area. And, and it just, I mean, can you talk about that? Like, how, how would you explain, like, not so much that, that looks beautiful, but no, and then the other thing is, she's saying, this is exactly where I'm hurting. I'm going like this, and she's like screaming. It's like, stop it. And then we had to give her some pain medicine. So yeah. it's like, well, what else can this be? Yeah, absolutely. So, and the radiologists will not report this on their ultrasound reports, right? They won't. So, all right, so uh, are we running out of time? Five more minutes? All right, so intussusception. So basically, intussusception, it's going to be uh, six months to two years, but it, uh, I'm sorry, six months, the peak is probably about around two, and you can see it up to six, although if you see it in a child older than six, then it's what they call a pathologic lead point, and so most of the pathologic lead points that I've seen are something like a Meckel's diverticulum, or even worse is like a Burkitt's lymphoma or some kind of cancer. Um, but anyway, it's like Intermittent abdominal pain is usually the tip-off plus vomiting. Um, and then the other classic thing is they're reporting they're either like doubling over every 20 minutes, and in between they're totally fine, or they're crying with their legs drawn up, and then they're fine, and then they do it again. OK, so, there's a, so the hallmark is actually something called the target sign. And then if you take it in long, there's something called the pseudo-kidney sign. And it's like, so if you see this, um, you've pretty much got the diagnosis. Um, here's another one. Hold on. I think this is Paul Sierzynski. So nobody's done a study on this yet. Well, no, there's one. It's not published. But you're looking for the target sign. And so usually, um, if you see this, you can be pretty certain that it's intussusception. You have? All right. So the classic current jelly. 
Um, if you see that, that's also a tip off. And yeah, this is more. So this is exactly what you're looking. Now, the, the thing is, you can't have interception and not find this. So that's the only problem. So this helps you rule in, but it does not help you rule out. So uh, the other thing I like to do is show the right kidney and show the interception. Because I've actually had radiologists, like when I first started, they're like, you don't know what you're doing. How do we know that this is not kidney? And so it's like, well, I would show them the kidney and show them the <laughs> appendicitis in the same frame. OK, so usually I'm going to start from the cecum, go up to the right upper quadrant, and then uh, come across the transverse colon. And about 90% of the time, you'll find it in the right upper quadrant. But be careful. Occasionally, I found it down in the cecum right next to the bladder. Um, but most of the time, the money is going to be right in the right upper quadrant. Um, and actually, they know that when radiologists do the ear enema, they say about 85 to 90% of the time, the lead point, which is what gives you that target, is in the right upper quadrant. So it's like, so if, you, if you're really busy, you don't have much time, and you, you, know, you just have to do a really focused exam, you go boom right there. If you don't see it, scan down, and then scan across. And then, um, so if I can't rule in interception, I, I was trained actually to get abdominal x-rays to help me rule out interception. So and, and actually, before I used learn, I actually did not learn how to use ultrasound during my residency. I did in my fellowship. So I was actually trained to manage interception with x-rays alone. And actually, all right, so in terms of the probe, you'll start from the cecum, come up, go up to the right upper quadrant, go across, down. Basically, follow the large colon like a picture frame. So let's just go forward. OK, great. And then here, let's play this. All right, so this is basically uh, the long axis, or sagittal. Here's your psoas muscle. And then I'm looking at the large colon. And we're not seeing much. All right, so that's normal. And then now this is a, this is a transverse, right? Here's the psoas muscle, there's the iliacs. And then there, this is the large bowel. Now this is subtle, but this is actually abnormal. What's abnormal about this is there's no air in the bowel. Okay, so this is actually a case where it was intersusception and I did not see the target sign. But the only, and, and when we reviewed it, we're like, wow, there's no uh, air in the bowel. And then the other thing is, if I can repeat this, let's see. There's a pseudo kidney right here. So you're not seeing anything here. There's just like no air. Right, here's the psoas muscle, there's the iliacs, this is the short axis, and then I go to long axis. This is the pseudo kidney, this is like kind of the medulla, and this is the cortex. And then when I went up to the right upper quadrant, we didn't see, uh, we didn't see the target sign. And then when we, and then so my next step is usually to get the x-ray. Hold on. And so, uh, so the way that, so I, some, it's actually divided. Some people think x-rays don't help you. I, I'm actually in the school that x-rays do help you. What we always look for is you're basically using air pattern. So if you see the stomach bubble, 
Uh, so the first thing is to look for the stomach bubble. If you've got air in the stomach, that'll help you because we know that the stomach is connected to the transverse colon by the gastrocolic ligament. And so the transverse colon owes, has to be uh, parallel to the, to the greater curvature of the stomach. And so if you can't see the transverse colon, either there's stool in it or there's going to be intussusception. And so intussusception is described as the same density as liver and you're kind of seeing something the same density of this liver in the greater curvature. So it's, and if you look down here, it's kind of like all grayish. So based on this, we cannot rule out uh, interception on the x-ray because you've, you've got this. And uh, so the next step, actually, I kind of signed out. It was an overnight shift. And then I think when they went to radiology, they actually found um, the target sign. Now, uh, they actually have Doppler, so if you, it depends on how good your machines are. I'm using um, Turbo, so I don't think the Doppler's that good. But if the, you don't have Doppler flow, that might predict a difficult reduction, and also it um, suggests that the bowel might actually dis, uh, be ischemic. The other thing is going to be history. If the symptoms have been going on for 48 hours, that also is going to predict difficult reduction. Okay. So this is when I didn't have a linear. I was using a transvaginal probe to diagnose interception. So this is like one of my first. So it doesn't, you know, it's like you can use any probe if you're desperate enough. Okay, and then here's the pseudo kidney. All right, so um, so this is interesting radiology data. So I love using radiology data against them. Um, they actually divided into junior, senior residents and attendings, and even their junior radiology residents could have um, comparable specificity to rule in interception with their, and they actually use this saying that, oh, the attendings can go home and sleep and the senior residents can be on home call and the juniors can just like stay in the hospital and take care of this. And it's like, well, if their residents can do this, it's like, I'm sure that we can do this as well too. Okay, so um, this is actually a study where it uh, actually showed that abdominal x-rays can help you rule out interception. So, and I'm just going to show you the technique. So if you can see air from splenic flexure down to hepatic flexure, so I usually get prone and supine films, or prone, I'm sorry, supine and um, left lateral cube, and you want the air to get into the right colon. So in the supine view, you're lying back and the transverse colon sits on top of the mesentery. So air should go into the transverse colon when you are lying supine. And so you have air from splenic flexure to hepatic flexure. And then um, the prone view, the ascending, descending colon are retroperitoneal structures. So when you're supine lying flat, air should rise up into the ascending colon. And you want to see air go into the cecum. So if you know that there's air from the cecum to the uh, right upper quadrant all across the splenic flexure, you virtually ruled out interception. And it's like when I see an x-ray like this, I'm like, interception's off the list. It's like, let's figure out why this kid's having, what other reason this kid's having abdominal pain. I'm sorry? Okay. All right. So, so, Intussusception, you're basically looking at a liver-shaped mass, right? So 
usually most interceptions are iliocolic, so it's the ilium kind of like telescoping into the colon. So it's going to work its way up, and by the time they're symptomatic, usually it's in the right upper quadrant. So here you can kind of see that there is air here, but if this is all solidly filled, and I'm going to show you, this is interception. Here's the stomach bubble. Here's your uh, splenic flexure. This is the lead point right here. This is the interception. It's the liver mass. You've got a little loop of small bowel. Right? So the way that you know this is small bowel is large bowel has halstra, and it's going to be incomplete. But small bowel goes all the way across. So this is small bowel, but you don't see anything in the large bowel kind of behind it. And this should be transverse colon. So this is stomach, greater curvature. Here's your transverse colon. And then you've got your, yeah, we're supposed to be talking about ultrasound, but it's OK to talk about plain bulbs. So, uh, so there's the air here. Here's your lead point. This is the transverse colon. It's all filled in with a liver uh, density, dense mass. And then, let's see. And then when we do the supine, I think this might be just another one. Here's the same thing. Here's your stomach bubble. Greater curvature of the stomach. You know this is the transverse colon. And then you start to see this. This is like liver density. Here's uh, a loop of small bowel. And it's kind of like this would be suspicious for interception. This is suspicious for interception. But when you see, let me go back to here. Hold on. When you see air all the way throughout, this is, not, this is like there's no interception. So it's kind of radiologists. And if you learn this technique, you'll be comfortable ruling out interception when the air pattern, this bowel gas pattern, is right. You got that? And that's supine and left lateral. Yeah, or I, I actually like supine and prone, but sometimes the x-ray techs are like not used to doing pr prone, and they're like, well, they'll be more comfortable with the left lateral. All right, so we're basically using ultrasound to help us rule in interception. And, and when the bell gas pattern is right, you can use x-ray to rule out interception. OK. Um, do we have time? Pyloric stenosis? OK. So uh, usually it's the four-week infant who has got projectile vomiting. Um, you're trying to feel for the olive. So the olive is palpated in 11 to 51% of the time. So not a very reliable thing. But if you do think you feel the olive, well, it's like we can use the sonal palpation idea. And actually, if you think you're feeling an olive, well, put the ultrasound probe right over it. And so this was actually a case where we found the, uh, we thought we saw the olive. And when we run the clip, and actually notice how superficial your abdominal wall is right here. This is actually the stomach. Hold on. Oops. Uh-oh. I think I've got too many clips. Your Mac is like uh, slowing down. There we go. Okay. So you're looking for a donut. This is actually the channel view. So here's the pylorus. This is the fundus. There's the channel. And in terms of the measurement, okay, so they call this the antral nipple. And you want to measure the muscle wall thickness, which is this, this dark area. This is all mucosa. And then, so there's two measurements. One is the uh, short axis donut view. And so um, 
in general, it, if it's greater than three millimeters, although nothing's perfect, um, that's suggestive of pyloric stenosis. And there's also a channel length. And so if the channel is measuring more than 15, although this is going to be different in the literature, um, that's also suggestive as well, too. Um, so yeah, great. so like the ones that I, we actually published this. Um, so looking at the radiology literature, greater than 15 millimeters, greater than 3 millimeters, although you're going to have cases where it's like not reading these textbooks or these papers. So if it's between 2 to 3, you're in this gray zone, and they call, it could be possible pyloraspasm, and they say, repeat, take another look in 3 to 5 minutes to see if it relaxes. And then they say if it's greater than 2 millimeters and you see passage of gastric contents, you've effectively ruled out um, pyloric stenosis. Um, so this is just another clip where we didn't find the olive, but we were able to find uh, the pyloric stenosis. So here's the short axis, right? And then in the beginning, this is the channel length. And then let's see if I have the measurements for this. It does. But the thing is, you're in the right upper quadrant. Right? So we usually don't see appendicitis at four to five weeks of age. So, All right. So here we had 2.3 millimeters and 4 millimeters. And again, and the measurement is from the center to the outside. Yeah. Not the whole well, yeah, so you want the hypoechoic muscle when you're doing the muscle wall thickness. Getting the channel length is kind of difficult. It does take a little skill. I mean, I think it's easier to find this. Um, but you want to kind of go long on this, and you want to clinch the diagnosis for the radiologists and the ped surgeons. Okay, so this is kind of another, it was actually a two-week-old who had projectile vomiting. And I th this was like kind of normal. It was this pyloraspasm indeterminate case. So I've got stomach here, and I'm in transfer. So there's stomach, and have them drink a little formula or Pedialyte to get the stomach to be full. And then I usually scan them uh, in the right side down. So I'm zooming in. Here's stomach. And then here's the pylorus right here. So I know it looks grainy, but it's kind of like, I think this is like not the easiest thing to do, but if you get desperate. And so it's like I'm not seeing any fluid pass through this pylorus. Um, and then when we went to measure this, uh, hold on. When we went to measure this, it was like about two millimeters. And he actually fed, I think he, we let him feed. We observed him for a couple of hours. He didn't vomit anymore. And then we told the parents, you know, if he vomits more, because you know that uh, pyloric stenosis can be a progressive disease. So we warned them about that. We had them follow up with their pediatrician. And actually, the same infant at three weeks came back with more vomiting. And then at that time, he was diagnosed with pyloric stenosis. So um, if we get better at this, we might get stuck in this situation where it's like too early to call. And then you're going to have to s tell the parents, like, close follow-up, and it's like they're going to need to meet criteria before they decide to do the surgery. So this is kind of like we actually had this like a week before he was officially diagnosed with pyloric stenosis. If you're watching this kid for a couple of hours, do you send labs, and what labs would pay the diagnosis I mean, of pyloric stenosis? Well, it I mean, so the hyperchloremic, that's kind of a, the classic textbook thing, but I think most 
Well, I don't know where I am. The alkalosis. Yeah. So um, where I am, the parents are usually sophisticated, and they will come in before the kids get that dehydrated. It's like I usually don't see kids so de dehydrated where they're having electrolyte abnormalities. Actually, um, I published kind of a case series, and I don't think I don't think any of those kids in our like little series of eight had. Um, had electrolyte abnormalities, and that's because they usually presented within a couple of hours of. Did you check your team? Um, well, no. If we well, if we suspect it and we're putting the IV, they're just going to get that sent off. But I don't really find that helpful. It's kind of like if you can make the diagnosis with ultrasound before the Chem Seven comes back, which usually it's like. I mean, we're doing it before the IV went in, so that's why. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like the. Uh, Pediatricians will ask for it, the ped surgeons will ask for it, but if you kind of show them the image and the picture is right, they're like, okay. Now, just remember, pyloric stenosis is not an emergency. So some people would say, well, we don't need to do this if you're really worried. Just admit the kid, put them on IV fluids to hydrate, and they get their ultrasound in the morning. But if you are at a community place where it needs transferring a kid out, if you've confirmed the diagnosis, um, they're probably going to get surgery. But if you're just sending kids who may be vomiting, and we actually have a couple of community places that do send us. Um, and then, of course, in the middle of the night, where it takes like four hours for the radiologist to do the ultrasound, it's easy for us to do this. If we can find normal pylorus, then we're thinking about other things in pyloric stenosis. Uh, oh, the other thing that you need to worry about. So in the differential of pyloric stenosis is midgut volvulus with malrotation. And so, um, so uh, if you see a normal pylorus, um, you still need to worry about this. And so I have not come across an emergency physician who's made this diagnosis yet. But if you've got a good Doppler machine, they uh, talk about this whirlpool sign where you basically are scanning the aorta and looking for the SMA to wrap around the SMV. Um, and then there's also something called SMA-SMV uh, reversal where um, the relationship of the, here, let's just play this. So this is aorta. This is IVC. This is your SMA. This is your SMV. This is a normal kid. This is just, so your SMV will be to the left of the SMA. If you see that, you need to be worried about malrotation, or at least, but it's not perfect. Okay. So usually, I'm also taking a look. I have the Doppler on. And I want to make sure that the relationship is normal. And if it's abnormal, you need to worry about uh, malrotation. OK, so ultrasound's better for ruling in. And be careful when you're ruling out. And I think that's it. Thanks for your attention. <laughs>